0: In Russia was a great power, with expansionist ambitions to its west. War was indeed a constant for the Russian state, with foes ranging from Poland, the Ottoman Empire and Finland, to Britain, France and Prussia. Later, in the 20th century, the USSR exercised control over much of Central and Eastern Europe under the guise of a military alliance, the Warsaw Pact. For some, this was a continuation of age-old great power politics. For others, the response of a new and profoundly modern Ideological project. For a short while after the Cold War, such geopolitical tribulations seemed a thing of the past. Not only was history over and ideological contestation a fading memory, but the Russia of the Tsars, which viewed itself as a world power preceding the revolution of 1917, was also seemingly gone. Yet, in recent years, that has started to change. At the turn of the millennium, the Russian Federation saw its economy stabilise under Vladimir Putin and later engaged in military conflicts abroad, Georgia in 2008, Crimea in 2014, and now a full invasion of Ukraine in 2022. But what are some of the ideas underpinning this new Russian assertiveness and expansionism? And what is the influence in particular of traditionalism? Until recently, a minor strain of ultra-conservative thought among the country's political players and networks. Finally, how does this relate to broader ideas in circulation among the global populist right? Are there really ideological similarities, for instance, between Steve Bannon and Alexander Dugin, a Russian ultranationalist conservative? Today I'm joined by Benjamin Teitelbaum to discuss all of that. Ben is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, he's written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal and The Atlantic, and his most recent book, War for Eternity, examines the rise of traditionalism and the populist right from the margins of Western politics to something which at times approaches its centre. Our conversation ranged from Putin's relationship to the European far right, which has deepened profoundly in the last 15 years, at least until last month, to the role of ideology in Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Ben, I want to start with this extraordinary image you paint in the book of Alexander Dugin, one of Russia's leading ultranationalist thinkers. In 2008, Duggan finds himself in South Ossetia with an AK-47, I believe, confronting the Georgian army. This is an intellectual of reasonable influence in Russia, even for his critics, doing something unthinkable for an individual of similar standing in the US or, or the UK, for instance. So let's start with Duggan and some of the mythos that surrounds him. Who is he and what is his background story?
1: It's great to be with you, Aaron. I think part of the challenge in understanding Alexander Dugan is is simply putting a label on him. You could call him a philosopher, you could call him a diplomat, you could call him a media personality, a professor, a rabble rouser, a political operative, and all of those things are true to a certain extent, and yet yet none of them would capture quite, quite who he is. Um, Compounding all of those difficulties is the fact that this this man's life seems to alternate between crystal clear indications of someone who is a phony, uh, someone who's a blowhard and has you know perhaps beguiled media into calling him uh, an influential figure um, but who really isn't. You have all of that phoniness on the one side and then on the, on the other hand you he, he shows up in places of real consequence and it, and it turns out that he does have, some of the channels to power that we think and Alexander Dugin really comes of age and becomes a uh, an, an influential thinker. I would say in the nineteen nineties, nineteen eighties, he grew up in in Russia. He grew up um, in uh, what should we call them dissident circles? A particular circle called the Yuzinsky Circle, uh, which was uh, a, a sort of collective of oddballs. Um, criminals in some, in some cases, at least in the eyes of the Soviet state, um, but also intellectual seekers. Um, and it was a mix of, in some cases, uh, nostalgia and support for Hitler and for historic Nazism with occultism, with alternative spirituality, um, mixed, uh, mixed with, with a sort of dissident ethos. That's, that was the kind of social world that he, he grew up in. But as time went on, he slowly, uh, uh, turned against the West, became more explicitly anti-Western in his thinking. Um, he, had, he had some connections uh, with, with Soviet state apparatus through his family, and that might have helped him when he was a, a young dissident in Russia at least stay afloat, even, even though his life was being uh, harassed in many ways by authorities. He still stayed afloat, but as the Soviet Union started to collapse... Uh, he decided that he wanted to play a larger role in what would come after, communism. And he started writing writing books. He started translating books, and his interest uh, eventually coalesced in in coming up with ways for Russia to oppose the West. He might have opposed communism in his young days, and he certainly did, but he felt that liberalism and democracy coming from the West were going to be far worse, and Russia might not only be able to keep liberalism and democracy out of its own borders but be able to uh be able to contain it on a global scale and actually play a role in in a grander um conflict between between ideas in the world so that's where that's that's the basic let's say geopolitical um motivation that that eventually crystallized in this in this man's life there's a question
0: for me that springs from that immediately which is how typical was uh, Dugin then of the kind of intellectual ferment coming out of the early 1990s? Because obviously, in the West, the default was, okay, well, they've moved away from communism, that means all the big ideas now are liberalism, market reforms. Mm-hmm. Was, there, was there a broader sort of intellectual trend towards actually saying, no, we, we still want to carve out something uniquely Russian, whether it's the economy,
1: culture, geopolitics? At, at, a, at a very generic level. Um, Dugan belonged to to a larger thrust in in, in post-soviet society absolutely in Russia that um, that that simply didn't want to acquiesce and mimic the models of the West um, of course and they competed against people Putin among them it, it must be said who for periods of time experimented with the idea of Russia being you know a, a new a larger state in this global liberal order but but among those who who just seem to have a sort of reflex against Westernization and liberalization of Russia, Dugin still stands out because he was, he was seeking for something with depth, not just an attitude, right? Not just a posture of, yeah, well, we're still going to be Russia. Um, But, but wanting to, wanting to understand, okay, well, what would that mean? And how could we find a radical deep alternative to democracy and liberalization? That's something separate from communism, separate from the historic foe of liberalism also, which is fascism. And, and it must be said, one of, one of Dugan's first political projects, uh, it, in retrospect, it looks, it looks like a, a sort of preparatory experiment for him, but he, he founded, co-founded a party called the National Bol- Bolshevik Party, which attempted to combine national socialism, Nazism, with communism. The justification being that these are the two historic foes of liberalism. Let's bring them together to make a more concentrated anti-American force. Um, he he played with that idea again. That just 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 going to uh, this speaks to his interest in in contrast and in anti-Westernism.
0: And his influence, as you said at the top of this, is is hugely disputed. Mm-hmm. But actually, when you look at um, his most influential book still, uh, *The Foundations of Geopolitics*. You know, it's 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 easy to see why that picture of him as this kind of magus for Putin's Russia is uh, is so alluring.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in that book, you find statements like the following. The Eurasian Empire will be constructed on the fundamental principle of the common enemy, the rejection of Atlanticism, strategic control of the USA, and the refusal to allow liberal values to dominate us. Elsewhere, he talks about the Finlandization of all Europe as a maximum task. And according to Foreign Policy magazine, The Foundations of Geopolitics is one of the most curious, impressive, and terrifying books to come out of Russia during the entire post-Soviet era. Now we're into the, into the late 1990s here. So it's published in 97. Uh, like you say, you've got market reformers having to grasp with the fact that, you know, you have this immense historical crisis hit the country in 1998. You know, Russia needs food aid, of all things. Mm-hmm. What happens here when we get the foundations of geopolitics? Because if you look at, like I say, some of the things inside of it, you know, a call to cleave the UK away from Europe and so on, a lot of it reads like prophecy. Or do you, you just think that's purely circumstance?
1: Uh, who knows? Who knows? Uh, no one can deny that it, that it reads like like prophecy, and it, it 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 goes even to greater levels of depth than 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 just that. There are also sections of this this book that uh, describe essentially what happened in the 2016 election with Donald Trump. Um, you know, almost two decades after it's it's, it's written, where you did have Russian uh, influencers going going through social media, attempting to foment internal divisions, uh, racial divisions and racial discord in the United States for the purpose of, of weakening the, the body politic in the West. Um, if, if, you want to understand, so, 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 the book is written in that way for, for Alexander Dugan, when he wrote it, um, he actually tempered himself quite a bit. <laughs> it, 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 it should be noted. I mean, the book is terrifying. Yes, I've heard these, uh, these, these commentaries on it. But part of its success was the fact that Dugan pulled out of the book what at the time had been a, a, a sort of ideological bread and butter for him, which was more philosophical, metaphysical, spiritualist uh, justifications for Russian expansionism. By the time he gets to the late 1990s, he is at a place, he's moving away from the combining fascism and communism stuff and moving toward traditionalism and starts to think, well, Russia needs to assert itself not just for the interests of a state, but because Russia could, in fact, be the new fount of tradition, uh, the new new wellsprings of of an anti-modern element in global society um, that would push back against progressivism and modernism emanating from the West. Um, And what, what Dugan did in Foundations of Geopolitics is he pulled all of that out. And he just put in the, the nuts and bolts of what he wanted to happen. Not a lot of why, but more how, let's say. Um, so he's doing that. And, and the success of the book, and, and, and I still think the, the nucleus of his influence in Russia, if you want to understand him still today, is the fact that that book was a type of required reading for a generation of military elites being trained in Russia's military academies. Um, it, it's, it's not today. It, it's, it didn't stay in that position long, but it stayed in that position long enough that we know, uh, you know, generations studying at the end of the nineties, the beginning of the two thousands treated that text as, as one of their, one of their go-tos.
0: I mean, for me, the allure is quite interesting in so much as as a, as a genre, I mean, this is something actually all authors should, should try and aim at, in a way, mm. when trying to explain these hugely complex global historical phenomenon. He says, "Look, it's complicated, but I can I can give you just enough to make it explicable." Mm-hmm. You know, and that the sort of the ripping off of the Harold MacKendrick quote, which is hugely interesting, and you know, you still hear in yes. circulation, "Who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Who rules the world island commands the world, etc." But like you say, what's absent is is some of his more bizarre stuff, frankly. I mean, that's comprehensible to a Western audience. But things, for instance, about more recent views, maybe you can just sort of illuminate what they are. You know, he, for instance, doesn't think that biology and, and chemistry should be taught. He thinks the internet should be banned. Mm-hmm. So d- does he just sort of sit on that? Or has that has that become a bigger part of his
1: thinking in recent years? It's, it's always been there. It was rather uh, an anomaly that you know for however many pages that book takes up that he tempered himself (laughs) uh that he was able to to put the reins on his more eccentric ideas that has always been there it still is there today um so so yeah rather rather the rather the text is is the exception
0: and you mentioned um, traditionalism. Let's let's move to that. What is traditionalism in the sense that you cover it in the most recent book you've written, War for Eternity? And how prominent is that in
1: Russian circles? So, tr- traditionalism is is first and foremost uh, a political and a spiritual school, not a political school. It's carried into politics um, by a man named Julius Evola, who was a sort of collaborator with Mussolini, um, wanted to collaborate with the Nazis during World War II, but but did not. Um, uh, Julius Evola, and then and then Alexander Dugan. Um, it asserts that ages and ages ago, there was a religion in the world practiced by people that was true and right, that got everything right, finally. And uh had all, all of the insights of the universe, but as time went on, it started to fragment and fall apart, and its insights were scattered into certain branches of certain religions in the world today. And if you want to understand what that eternal truth was, you need to do comparative religious work, number one, to see to try and reconstruct it through the various religions, and you should also devote yourself to one chosen religious path um, completely at the same time in the hopes that you might gain its deepest insights. Um, what what matters for politics in traditionalism uh, are, are a handful of ideas that its practitioners think belong to that eternal truth. Um, and I'll just highlight a few of them here for you. One of them is the belief in cyclic time, um, a rejection of the idea that uh, history proceeds linearly, um, not just that what I'm saying now is now in the past, but, but also that um, we might meaningfully be building upon our history and our past to make something better than has ever come before. Um, traditionalism rejects that idea at a fundamental deep level and says instead that, that human society has typically been cycling through four for ages, a golden age moving to a silver, bronze, and dark age, after which a cataclysmic event pushes us back to a golden age. Um, and in that sense, it claims that we're never going to make anything better than what has already existed. For most of our existence, um, society is degrading, not improving or progressing as a modernist would think. Um, and also our, our archaic identities, social roles, dispositions are our fate and our destiny. Um, so we're always going to, we're always in a process of becoming what we were before. We're never really leaving, um, a situation. Um, the other idea, just in introducing traditionalism, what's important to know for for, for Dugan uh, in particular, it is also the idea of hierarchy in a stratified society. Um, when traditionalists say that things are getting worse and that it used to be a golden age and we're going to a dark age, some of what they refer to in particular is um, the gradual erasure of social hierarchy um, of a society very much modeled in the in the Hindu caste system where you have an upper caste with priests on top of a caste of warriors on top of a caste of merchants on top of one of slaves a hierarchy in other words that with priests on top and slaves on the bottom prioritizes spirituality above materialism um, prioritizes immaterial ideals against material bodies quantity against uh, excuse me quality against quantity Um, and for some branches of traditionalism also the Brahmin priests are, are understood as Aryans, opposite non-Aryans. Masculinists, op- opposite feminists. A global north, opposite a south. Um, those, uh, those hierarchies are seen as, as disintegrating as the time cycle moves forward. Um, and it's not just that values of materiality, of, of let's say secularism, start to overtake society as time goes on. It's also a belief, and this is key for Dugan again, that um, as you pr- as you move into a dark age, you see a new formlessness. That hierarchy itself dissolves, and it's not just a matter of a sort of vertical stratification that that disintegrates, but instead boundaries of all kinds. Um, that in a dark age, you see material, massified, feminized, non-Aryan uh, uh, values spreading. By virtue of the absolute absence of borders in world society in general, um, and and thus for a traditionalist, the way to address that, the way to to start to get back to a more a more glorified existence is to resurrect boundaries. And in it seems to me, just in studying this in any possible way you can think of it, it's if, if I sit around in my room and I and I just think. Well, where could where how could our world be sliced and diced a little further? Um, where could we find a place for more boundaries? Then I hear one of these figures, yeah, you know, going a step further and reminding of it, uh, reminding me of a different way that that our society could be separated uh, internally. That's that's what they're going for, and this this is the ideological roots. In in Dugan's case, this is what he started studying in the early eccentric circles is what he has continued working on throughout the publication of Foundations of Geopolitics up until today. This has been consistent, whereas all of the the sort of dry secular strategic political thinking almost seems a, a sort of afterthought in order to get to these ideals.
0: Well, I guess they align is that that idea of the of a post liberal turn. Obviously, you have a post-liberal turn at the uh, at, at the level of geopolitics, the demise of unipolarity, mm-hmm. the demise of U.S. hegemony, uh, potentially the reverse of of globalization. I mean, that's inarguably been happening. I think probably mm-hmm. for a decade, if not more. And then you seem to be saying that dovetails with a personal, a sort of personal handbook of of, of conduct, in in not even yeah, in the moral and more importantly, I suppose the, the spiritual mm-hmm. sphere. Um, this all does sound remarkably... First of all, I mean, I see lots of that stuff on, on sort of far-right telegram chats mm-hmm. and stuff, uh, the, the sort of stuff that you really um, illuminate so expertly in the book. But as you spoke just then, I was reminded of Jordan Peterson, of all people. You know, the the naturalisation of what are eff- effectively, or what we would consider socially created um, hierarchies, authority, this, this hugely important incision between men and women... And then, of course, the more, the more regular stuff we associate with contemporary liberalism, secularism, freedom of movement, etc. I mean, it, it does sound to me that actually, you know, this stuff has really infected mainstream centre-right thinking over the last 10,
1: 10, 5 years, really, in particular. Is that a fair assessment? It, it, it depends. We might not want to put the causality in the place that, that you did. I, I think it's rather that when, when traditionalism enters politics, it's not an accident that it enters it in cultural conservatism. Um, they're still not the same thing. They're still, we're still going to find ourselves in a place where Jordan Peterson um, suddenly, if, if he's in a room with Alexander Dugan, is suddenly shocked that that he happens to be in that context. But the two of them could keep keep uh, affirming one another's thoughts for a while, at least in the initial phases of their political agendas. Um, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about hierarchy and order, too, right? And that and that we need to fight back against chaos. Um, Dugan could support that in some ways. And he does see a sort of chaos in in modernity. Although I would, I would point readers back to the concept of cyclicality here. What pushes time from an age of darkness into an age of, uh, of gold for a lot of these traditionalists is destruction is a certain amount of chaos. Um, that's what the prophecy holds and, and in their minds, order arises out of that complete destruction. So that, Apocalyptica is not as much a part of, of more mainstream conservative brands.
0: Yeah, I guess somebody like Peterson, he he does have he has a Whiggish sort of theory of history. I think he probably would believe in something resembling progress. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important an important distinction to to make.
1: And and reason as well. I mean when, when I when I say that the, the notion of kind of boundedness and stratification just can can Multiply and spread in all different directions. One thing we see with Dugan that we would not see with Jordan Peterson uh, Is is a rejection of universal reason in human human reason Dugan would rather see a world with a multiplex variety of definitions of truth Uh, In one of my interviews with him, for example, you know, I I was asking him something very very concrete were you at this place at this time And, and he said, I don't want to talk about facts. And by the way, there's no such thing as facts. The world is just our ideas about it. (laughs) And it parallels when he was talking about Russia's account of what was taking place in Syria, he said, well, we have our special Russian truth about it and you have your American truth about it. And there's nothing in between, um, that, that sort of eccentric, Mm. um, epistemological territory is not something where you would find Jordan Peterson.
0: I mean, I should mention this now, now that you've indicated it. I mean, you've, you've met all of these people, which I just find utterly remarkable. The book is amazing, by the way. It reads oh, like a spy you. novel in parts, despite being hugely educational. But you've met Bannon, you've met Alava, you've met Dugin. Who, who, else, who else is on this kind of uh, coalition of chaos that you've met?
1: Some of the other figures, some who I, were not, I was really not able to, to write about much in the book, but were in Hungary. Uh, the political party Yobik, I think, is is fairly well known in in Europe as as being one of the more radical variants of the the kind of right wing populist family of parties, and and they too had a traditionalist advisor behind a traditionalist polit- party leader for a period of time, um, a spiritual advisor, although they didn't want to call him that. Um, and I spent some time with them, and I've spent a lot of time in Scandinavia also with um, with ideologues and, and politicians.
0: Yeah, so, so now that you've said that, I mean, what's the broader movement for these ideas globally? You know, where, where are people most receptive to Alexander Dugin beyond Russia? Because we've got, like you say, Jobbik. He's been detained at the Greek border before. He regularly visits Iran. This, this sounds like a pretty extraordinary sort of sphere of influence. So if you could just talk about that for a few moments, that would be uh,
1: useful it's it, it's hard to it's hard to track the sphere of influence of traditionalist ideas in a way that's meaningful they're they're little cells of oftentimes rather miserable little boys who are who who, who follow Alexander Dugan and, and, and form you know Eurasianist groups or or new resistance groups uh, kind of honoring him but what what matters um, today in in terms of his the spread of his ideas I I don't think it's Europe anymore. It's, in fact, it's been pretty surprising to see how much some of the groundwork he laid in Europe's far right to make a pro-Putin European far right has evaporated in these past weeks. It is rather Turkey. And we often don't see what Dugan is doing in real time. It usually comes out later. It would not surprise me if right now, these past weeks, he has either been in Turkey or has been in a lot of contact with Turkish authorities. He, um, he has served as some sort of diplomat to them. We don't, we don't really know. It's certainly not in an official capacity from Russia. But, um, you know, executive uh, branches of their government are, seem to be in steady contact with him. They, they drop kind of anecdotal references to that quite, quite a bit. Um, in moments of, of real intense diplomatic crisis, for example, in 2015... November 2015, when Turkey shot down a Russian jet uh, coming out of Syria, um, and those three nations were, were in crisis with each other, they, they eventually worked it out. And then we found out months later that the negotiator between the three was Alexander Dugan. Uh, and my, my, my suspicion is that is that, that he's there right now trying to do something to mitigate uh, whatever Turkish actions would be taken in support of Ukraine in the West right now—that's that—that's where he has, I think, his his most reliable audience abroad.
0: Just um, just because of the geopolitics sort of line, the fact you say Turkey is quite interesting because in Foundations of Geopolitics he talks about three particular alliances: one with Japan, one with Tehran, and then one with uh, Berlin, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you know, in in that sort of in that view. Where does Turkey sit? Because, you know, this is probably lost on, on most people listening to this when they're familiar with the European far right, they think of white nationalism mm-hmm. and so on. But you do have this weird strain, particularly in Hungary, of effectively looking to Asia as the as the point of the sort of nationalist myth, yes. uh, not with Fidesz, but with Yubik. So, So how does that work exactly? If he's if he's, we would think of Dugan as a, as a white nationalist. I mean, is he not a white nationalist? Because like you say, he's going to somewhere like Turkey or he's quite sympathetic to Iran. How does that work?
1: I, I wouldn't call him a white nationalist. That's that's a pretty blunt instrument. He, he, he's a sort of ethnic nationalist for the world. He wants to see people retreating into um, into tribal associations and that, that will overlap with race. Um, but that's we would kind of be cheating ourselves of insight if we just, if we, if we just said that, um, it, the, the, when it comes to Turkey, yes, there are nationalist parties in Europe. I mean, Yovic and even Fides has some neo, uh, Turanist ideas. Then this notion that really ethnic Hungarian racial and ethnic identity is Turkic. And if, if Hungary wants to find its place in the world, it needs to turn East, not West. Um, but for where we're, we're where Dugan comes in, I think supporting a lot of that and why he had an early audience with with Jobik in its in its more radical days, um, was it, he started to see potential for for I think geopolitical um, uh, fruits and 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 benefits w- between a, an alliance between Turkey and Russia. It was not embedded in his his ideology. and if anybody is ever saying, well, I don't think Dugan is a real sincere, ideologue he's just doing whatever he has to do to justify russian imperialism this is one piece of evidence what i'm about to describe here is one piece of evidence supporting that he rewrote uh sections of of his books most notably the fourth political theory to include turkey in the network you just described (laughs) right to say that yes the Ottoman Empire and and Russia have been historic foes but we actually have more in common than we realize and we need to be um, we need to be imagining a future where, where we actually combine to to uh, own and coordinate Eurasia this great island in the world um, and the fact that he was willing to do that um, certainly attests to <laughs> Uh, uh, to to a sort of prioritization of of political expediency over ideology. Um, There are other ways in which that doesn't seem true. But 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 here, we definitely saw saw him him being willing to to put forward this alternative interpretation and bring Turkey into the fold, retrospectively.
0: And what they what they share, I suppose, is an aversion to liberalism. Um, That being a liberal global order, but also liberalism at the level of personal conduct, spirituality, etc.
1: Yes, and secularism, progress, globalism, uh, cosmopolitanism, absolutely. I mean, in, in Turkey's history, this is a rejection of Ataturk, of course, um, and, and, and a new attempt, especially with, with Erdogan, to, to, to retrench into Turkishness. And it does have it does have some natural affinities with a lot of what Alexander Dugan has been saying. and where does China fit in all of
0: this? Because you have this interesting sort of side play with Bannon and Dugan, and they're sort of actually they they're working alongside different Chinese interests, different factions within Chinese politics.
1: yes, Steve Bannon, trump's uh, former former advisor, met with Alexander Dugan. Despite the fact that Dugan wouldn't wouldn't answer my question about this in the in the first time I asked it, they met together in Rome in November 2018, and um, and they were each attempting to influence one another. It, it seems um, they both shared this background in traditionalism that we spoke about earlier, but um, for Dugan he he looked at geopolitics today and thought that China um, with its Communism with the power of its state, with its affirmation, in other words, of a collective opposite Western individualism, that China represented something sacred in in global politics, and that uh, if China could be strengthened, it would push back against the decadence, the globalism, the individualism of the West. Bannon, uh, also working with the traditionalist mindset, came to a different conclusion. He saw in China massification Um, mass materialism, secularism, and globalism, Um, that in his mind, a globalism, I should add, that that outdoes the globalism of the United States, that China was essentially flooding uh, the world with the products of cheap labor, integrating everyone into the same economic system and and erasing spirituality um, and local sovereignty and local distinctiveness in the process. So the two got together to try, try and and argue in in that way. And, and Bannon was attempting to convince Dugan beyond that, that Russia at the same time as, as, as China is a decadent other, Russia actually belongs within the sphere of the West. And his, his argument was that China's, uh, excuse me, that Russia is Christian and that Putin is a nationalist and that Christian nation states are, are the sort of deep cultural, spiritual, model of the West. And it makes sense, therefore, for a traditionalist, spiritually based geopolitics and world order for Russia to be part of the United States and Europe, and per, per, potentially with Europe's other satellites, which included, especially for banned in Brazil. Um, all of that would be opposite China. Uh, the two of them didn't, didn't agree and couldn't, couldn't work that out, even though they were both amused uh, it seems with each other and happy to be to be speaking. Um, it was, it, it was at, at least a very strange attempt to to leverage these ideological connections to, uh, to try and make a change in, in a political order.
0: And these ideas from Steve Bannon, I mean, are they Are they meaningfully analogous to Alexander Dugin? From what it it sounds like, you know, they're reading from the same sources, they're engaging with the same
1: ideological figures, or is that overstating it a little bit? Well, they're they're working with the same standard, at least officially. Um, They're both trying to fight against mass homogenization, mass secularism, globalization, materialism. Uh, Those are the things that they each seem to share. Um, the question is, is where are those, where are those various elements to be located in world politics today? And that's where they, that's where they disagree. Traditionalism is not, remember when I was explaining it, it's, you know, it's a philosophical or a spiritual or religious school. It's not a political theory. And the fact that it doesn't explain so much leaves room for these types of disagreements.
0: Hmm. You briefly mentioned Brazil there, which for um, you know for, for for Bannon, a big part of the project was was Brazil being you know much closer to the US than to China. Of course, it's been exporting you know huge amounts of agricultural products and so on to, to China over the last ten years. Um, Olavo, you know, I, I w- I'd heard the name before, but I think this book really opened up the sort of thought architecture and 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 the influence of the guy over Bolsonaro. Can, can you talk about Olavo a little bit? And how you know he he kind of represents a Dugan figure to bolsonaro
1: yeah, this is this is the the slightly creepy thing about the whole the whole story is that while Bannon rises up, while well, you have Dugan um, rising up, then all of a sudden in Brazil we get a third traditionalist almost in the same position, an advisor to bolsonaro Olavo was unlike the other the other two formally initiated into a sort of traditionalist cult um, the the Sufi. Uh, Muslim Sufi Tariqa of Fritz um which was a, he was a, a Swiss um, immigrant to the United States who converted to uh, to Islam um, and Sufism, believing that would be his path to to the tradition. Anyways, uh, Olavo had been part of of that past. He had translated and spread and taught traditionalist ideas to uh, to people in Brazil for a long time. He's very eccentric, an astrologer. Um, like Dugan, he's very hard to put a single a single label on um, and became a journalist with an absolutely ferocious pen, vulgar, um, in ways that go beyond really some of your wildest imaginations. He would go out in public and just skewer people in Brazil. It eventually made him very popular with the insurgent kind of dissident populist right Um, And by the time Bolsonaro comes along and wins the election, suddenly one of his biggest fans is in charge of Brazil. Olavo never becomes an official advisor to Bolsonaro, but um, he is a media mouthpiece and he also is doing a lot of background politics. He has actual members of the cabinet, um, actual figures in Bolsonaro's sphere who are who, who attest some allegiance to him. Um, the, the term guru is, is, is I think very appropriately applied to Olavo uh, there, but to bring him into the conversation we were just having and, and the debate between Bannon and Dugan, I think a lot of what Bannon brought to his conversations with Dugan about geopolitics actually comes from a debate that Dugan and Olavo had had earlier, um, where the two of them had this conversation about traditionalism and geopolitics. And where would spirituality be promoted? And, and Olavo spent most of the debate just attacking Dugan and saying that Russia in no way could be seen as, as some sort of spiritual font in uh, China, neither. That they were both deranged, uh, evil, militaristic, crude, idiotic, um, brutish uh, uh societies that that seem to do nothing but want to ex, ex you know export their mistakes to the rest of the world. Um and and that really if you wanted to promote, if you wanted to find spirituality, you probably wouldn't look at Western finance and not Western governments. But Olavo said that the the real people in the United States and in Brazil, and maybe Israel, he adds on that that religious rural population that they were actually the uh the avatars of the ambassadors of of spirit in the world opposite russia opposite uh china as well um that's 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 where he was it didn't take off in traditional circles alava was not it's not like he the two of them were fighting over this this esoteric religious community spread throughout the world but it set the stage at least for for Bannon to come in and and use it to try and lobby Dugan later.
0: You're a, you're an observer of this stuff. I mean your background is the, the Swedish sort of far right if I'm not mistaken. Uh, um, I mean
1: as an observer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, as an observer, yeah. as an academic, yeah.
0: you know, but you you were immersed in these discourses long before they, you know, they became so globally prominent. Yes. Um Do you think that there's a long-term footprint of this stuff? So, you know, obviously Bannon in the US, Olavo in Brazil, you know, to to, to what extent do you think it's kind of, I I can't really think of a better word, but infected the broader right, centre-right in in their respective countries? So, for instance, you know, just as an observer in the UK, Bolsonaro looks like quite a sweet, generous politician. You know, mm-hmm. he looks like a complete one-off and that we'll probably see a return to Lula if you know if there's not a coup at the, at the next Brazilian election. Ditto with Trump, even if he wins in 2024, it seems quite sweet, generous, quite, quite one-off. Is that a mistaken interpretation, do you think?
1: In, in terms of the, the political fortunes of the individuals, no. I, I, I think you're right. If, if we think, but if we ask ourselves, you know, what is the legacy of these particular figures, Bannon, Olavo Dugan, um, some others like them it, it's certainly not evangelizing for weird esoteric ideas i mean hardly anybody even in their own movements even the even the politicians they're there they've been lobbying knows what traditionalism is this is a private interest on their part instead what seems the, the common thread with those those figures is a sort of concentrated recklessness that stands out even within these anti-establishment populist uh firebrand political causes they have been the ones if it's bannon if it's it, you know if it's if it's bannon's opposition to democratic process to the to, uh, to governmental norms to media norms if it's olavo's opposition to science with writ large if it's dugan's warmongering um they have been the ones to push a sort of radical rupture in behavior with their, with their politicians. I happen to think that that's, that's intelligible within some of the teachings of traditionalism. The fact that it does not place any value on construction. It does not place any value in immediate precedence, um, in respecting the institutions and respecting norms. Instead, it places value in destroying it all and letting the currents of time reconstruct something. Um, but, but it's, it's to me, that's still very clear. And I think that's their legacy is this no holds bar, um attitude toward uh toward toward dealing with opponents and pursuing your ends
0: i mean the, the the europe's far right over the last 10 years has been extraordinarily close to the kremlin you had the, the front national mm-hmm. i think they were called rassemblement national now you know yes. uh will loan nine million euro from russian banks i think they would offer something like 50 million euro previously had people like farage salvini trump all very very close or, or openly saying that they admire putin mm-hmm. Do you think they'll shift now to some kind of default anti-Russian Atlanticism um, following recent events in Ukraine? Or, or is that simply too big a jump for some of these people, given their their more underlying, deeper ideological interests?
1: I think it's it's going to be hard to support Atlanticism or, or, or to be enthusiastic about, you know, Western finance or something like that. I think they're in the wilderness right now. They... they I've been happy to see how quickly they have turned on Putin. Um, it, it's, it's a certain testimony to the fact that, that the reaches and the expanse of different disinformation of media echo chambers, notwithstanding, there are certain facts on the ground that still assert themselves um, to everybody. Um, but, but what replaces this orientation? I, I'm, I'm not sure I have seen in some circles um these have been, by the way, some more radical, like Richard Spencer, for example, an American hmm. white nationalist, has said, "You know what Russia did? It galvanized the West and increased Western consciousness of itself, and and this is wonderful, and we should celebrate uh, this this event for 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 that reason." That could that could be the response, but these are, as you point out, I mean these these are political causes that for so long have have constituted themselves in opposition to the eu uh to you know connections uh, with the united states to to viewing indeed the west as 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 dugan views it as this uh as this center for liberalism uh for individualism and the negation of national identity and, and collective identity and national boundaries and and theocracy so i don't uh, i don't know, but it's they're certainly moving i I think that th- there are very, very few of them showing signs of of digging 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 in in their support of Putin and saying we 're just going to stick it out with him and we 're going to come up with ways to rationalize what he 's doing as being good for us that's that's not happening
0: mm. going back to Russia, how mainstream are these ideas of eurasianism and um Russian civil society because you 've got Dugan as a Editor in chief at Zagrad TV, which is a TV channel owned by uh, Konstantin Malafeev, is a, a very powerful Russian tycoon. You don't really hear much about him, who's kind of bankrolling a lot of the separatist movement in um, in Ukraine. Yes. So you know this is a this is a this is a influential ideologue. I mean that's you know it's kind of debated how influential, but he's the editor-in-chief of effectively a, a TV operation which is modelling itself on Fox News. I mean, that mm-hmm. that sounds like it's here to stay in terms of domestic ideological infrastructure in
1: Russia. Yes, yes. And the Dugan is very shrewdly in those contexts, he presents a kind of watered-down version of himself in the same way he did with the Foundations of Geopolitics book. There is there is this Eurasianism that comes out in, in those settings that is aptly called Eurasianism light. It is a, a discussion of sort of R- Russ, Russia's inherent right to assert itself um, in, in its areas of privileged interest and, and to say that, well, the boundaries of the Soviet Union were not just random, you know, economic uh, political boundaries. In fact, they reflect a deeper cultural community and that shall be our rationale For Asserting ourselves and setting boundaries around the West's incursion in into this into this domain Um, And to lightly say things like we heard from Putin in his speech to say that well uh, Ukrainians and Russians actually are are spiritual brethren. We have the same spirit uh, As as one another if you keep it at that light area (laughs) at that light level, and you don't, don't go in, into anything deeper with time cycles and a battle between modernity and tradition and all that stuff. If you keep it at that level, it's fairly digestible. And, and, and it has been digested. Um, I don't, I don't know how many, what portion of Russian society would, would, you know, use the word Eurasianism that, that frequently, but a, a large portion and understand it simply as, as an explanation as a justification for Russia to assert itself in, in, little more. And, and to say that those boundaries, the political map that we see today, um, denies and is, is inaccurate because there are actual, actual, there's actually another, another political map that aligns with people's identities and affiliations and instincts that, that should be, that should be honored. That idea is not that radical.
0: Mm, I mean, I think there's something of a, I think there's a sort of collective misunderstanding going on in, in I say the West, it's a huge term, but certainly in Britain here, and I think I can see it amongst American audiences too, which is, you know, Putin's the bad guy, get rid of him, and Russia will be a very different place. Now, that's not to say all Russians agree with what's happening in Ukraine, far from it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's many, many people out in streets being arrested and so on. Some people are just ambivalent. I mean, until, of course, domestic sanctions hit. Some people are underinformed you know, underinformed or, or, or whatever, but if you look at the country's political elites, I mean, there, there does seem a broad consensus around a lot of this stuff, whether it's the ultra nationalist liberal democrats, whether it's the party, uh, the Communist Party. Uh, so, I mean, Dugin, Putin. I mean, I know you're not, you know, you're not your first love isn't. You're not a Russian scholar, but it, it does seem that you know this, these people aren't outliers. It's not like what well, you can just get rid of two or three people and, and and Russia's disposition to Europe to Ukraine will be profoundly different. Is that is that
1: a fair conclusion? Oh, absolutely. Uh, to, to underline it, in Dugan's mind, Putin isn't a great exponent of Eurasianism. He's not the ideal uh, leader. He Dugan was really crushed in 2014 that, that Putin didn't finish the job, didn't do it with uh, with less bashfulness. <laughs> um, and, you know, to, to let, let the Donbass go, to let Crimea be at first occupied, by these unmarked soldiers um, was, was an unacceptable compromise, uh, a sort of consolation prize for, for Dugan. He, he, he wanted to see a different type of radicalism. He wanted to see what he sometimes calls solar Putin, um, a a leader who, who does not simply reflect um, the world as it is, but instead asserts the world as it ought to be. And, um, and I have to think that, yes, if, if if Putin falls, that's that's not the end of the world for Dugan. The hope would be that a more committed ideologue would take his place. And it's absolutely possible that, that such a person could be found.
0: Final question. Do you think the Western media sort of failed to to cover this stuff adequately? Because, I mean, it, it is easier to sort of opt for that great man view of history, or in this instance, bad man, by, by focusing on Putin. But... I mean Dugin's story, and I think this is so interesting because even if he's not that influence, you know, he, like you say, his biography tells us, uh, tells us I think a great deal about the trajectory of Russian politics and civil society since since 1990. The fact a man like this can have, yes. you know, have held a, a prestigious position in a university, can have published a best selling book, can be involved in the media and so on, I think tells you quite a lot about post communist Russia. Why? Yep why don't you think we get these more nuanced accounts of Russian civil society and the ideas underpinning it? Is that just because of, you know, we've got to have five-minute soundbites? Is it because of a Cold War mentality? What's your explanation?
1: I, I think it's partially that. I, I think um, we underestimate how distant some of the ideologies in Russia are from ourselves. And and that's that takes work. I, I To me, the the somewhat short lived right wing enthusiasm for Putin among the American mainstream, right? Let's say Fox news, Tucker Carlson, those, you know, not, not the, not the Steve Bannon outliers, but the sort of mainstream, right? It, it was there for a while. Um, and it was enabled because Western media looked to, to Russians and, said, Oh, he's, he's not woke. Um, he doesn't like gay marriage either. And therefore, he's kind of one of us, and maybe he's our guy actually. And well, isn't you know, boy, I prefer him to uh, to Biden. The the instinct in in a lot of Western media was to just kind of take Putin and put him into our political spectrum, find a place for him, and uh, and and then start to pass judgment based on that. Where what was really, I think, the actual truth of the ideas lying behind Putin. Show us that our political spectrum is actually a lot closer a lot smaller than we realize and that it has an opponent that is so far away From it that we we can we can barely comprehend it that that takes work. So it comes back. Yes I think to the soundbite the the short soundbite um, Genre of our media reporting Um, But you also have to expand your mind a little bit and, and it's and it's very unsatisfying given our domestic political debates it's very unsatisfying to say you know what the conclusion of, of my curiosity is that our day to day fights with one another are actually not as grand or not playing playing out over such a great expanse of ideological territory, as I think they are, because there's actually an alternative that is further from us that no one no one really wants to do that.
0: Well, that's a great place to end on. Ben, thank you so much. I would just uh, sort of uh, reaffirm to our listeners, War Fraternity is a brilliant book, very readable.
1: Pleasure to be with you, Aaron. Thanks so much.
0: This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to NovaraMedia.com slash support.